you can go to Mark 13. Mark 13 is where we're going to be camping out all morning this morning. Mark chapter 13. Well, let me just say, as you are finding your way to that passage, Mark 13 is an interesting uh, chapter, and in our study through Mark, it can touch on some, really some sensitive areas for some of you. So let me encourage you, even before we just come out of the gate, don't, don't let it. Don't let it touch on some sensitive areas, maybe with some traditions that you, you've come from that are, that are, that are going to hit in, into some different things that we cover, because these are what we essentially call non-essentials. Uh, in the church. Um, so we're going to be talking about some things of which there are different traditions and there are different thoughts and some different interpretations behind. So what my hope and my prayer is, is that you actually come away more encouraged and more challenged than, than confused. And so that's, that's one of our aims uh, this morning as we open up Mark 13. So with that, let me, let me pray so that we can, um, we can actually do that, that I'm able to preach and you're able to hear God's word. Holy Spirit, we do pray that now that you would Illuminate our minds to the truth we find as we open your word and we read of the hope that awaits those who put their trust in you. We ask that you would replace our fear with faith and with the assurance that you walk with us through all trials and testings that we face in this fallen world. We pray that you would be our strength even now um, as we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And together we said, amen. Well, you guys can buckle up. I'm going to take us through the entirety of Mark chapter 13 right now, starting in verse 1. It says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in the hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. 
But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, for I've told you all things beforehand. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and put out, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. It's the word of the Lord. So here we are in Mark 13, also known as the Olivet Discourse because this was the discussion he was having with a few of his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And again, this is a passage that has seen its fair share of discussion and controversy and debate within, let me, let me stress that, within walls of the church. So those of you without a church background or, or you know, a, a background where you've come up through a lot of these things, you won't, won't really know this. Um, but So this will kind of serve as a brief introduction, and you know, you're welcome um, by the time we get to the end of this. And you know, it, if I'm being honest, and obviously you wouldn't want your pastor to be lying to you from behind the pulpit, um, man, I've been, I've been a bit fearful coming into this one, uh, fearful of a couple of different things, specifically, uh, number one, of not spending a, enough time in something that we could spend literally weeks on. And, uh, and many uh, pastors and theologians have, but I'm also fearful of spending weeks on something like this and letting ourselves become emerged and immersed uh, in something of, of this nature. And so given the, what we're gonna see is the highly sort of interpretive nature of this passage, the view that I'm going to be loosely landing on led me to just uh, spend one week on it. So because of that, uh, we're going to do more of a, just kind of a brief overview this morning. We're gonna key in on some of the finer points and then hopefully end with some broader application. Uh, look, if you are somebody, let me just state this ahead of time, if you're somebody who wishes we'd, wishes we'd you know, spend the rest of the year uh, going word by word in Mark 13, uh, you know, I just want you guys to know that I am, I am happy-ish uh, to have further discussion with you after the service. So uh, feel free to hit me up uh, and be gentle, please. Um, a couple things that I wanna accomplish as we, as we get into this, as we unpack this text. Number one, I want us to try and understand this text, like all text, in the context 
that it was spoken by Jesus to his disciples. Remember, this was something that was spoken to Jesus, by Jesus, to his disciples. Number two, I want to acknowledge, all right, right off from the get-go, that good pastors and scholars and theologians have come away with different interpretations of Mark 13, depending on what parts of the passage that they take either a literal or a figurative view of, okay? So this is one of those things that it's a, this, is, this is intramural. This is an in-house debate. This is not a gospel issue. There can be interpretations, different interpretations of passages of this nature as long as those passages are subservient to the whole of Scripture, as long as they don't contradict the theme of the gospel that we see threaded throughout the Bible. And, and these don't. We can have different views and still stay within the parameters of Scripture. And then number three, I want us to end, hopefully, in a place of what I'm calling gospel wakefulness. As we apply the implications that this passage bears on our lives, regardless of, of where we land or which view that we fall under. Okay? Is that, are we square with all of that? Because, man, I really don't want to repeat that again, and I, I'm not going to. Um, so, okay, a little opening here. If you grew up in the 1970s or 1980s like I did, uh, movies like A Thief in the Night or songs like I Wish We'd All Been Ready, written by old school Christian hippie Larry Norman. Um, again, when I, say, uh, when I say movies like A Thief in the Night and I say songs like I Wish We'd All Been Ready, for, for, for some of you that are a little before that, you're a little after that, I should say, you just want to picture you know, hippies sitting in circles, trembling while singing folk songs about the end of the world, just normal stuff like that, which is what these movies were about. But they were the occasion, all right, for many people from, from my generation and earlier generations to start having nightmares, okay, about, about cheery topics like the mark of the beast, the antichrist, and, and guillotines and stuff that we, you know, just talk about in normal everyday life. And, uh, you know, and just to make sure that uh, the next generation didn't miss out on all the, all the good times, a guy named Tim LaHaye, ended up in the 90s publishing a series of books called the Left Behind series that sold literally like more copies than the Bible, practically, right? Uh, and now, now hear me, all right? Because some of you guys are getting a little bit of a frown on your face. I'm not here to be snarky with you about the Left Behind series or make anyone feel bad for enjoying fairy tales, all right? These books, these movies, they were very loosely based on passages like the ones we just read which some believe speak of Christ's second coming or what we call the end times or more officially, uh, it's called eschatology, which is the study or the doctrine of end times. Now, there have been different, like I said a little bit earlier, there have been different theological perspectives on the end times, some which have deeper historical and traditional roots than others. But as we unpack Mark 13, we're going to see that verses 1 through 23 that we just read are actually signposts spoken by Jesus about the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem that ended up taking place as a matter of historical fact again in 70 AD. It's when we get into verses 24 through 37 that we're confronted with whether Jesus was speaking about his second coming or was just using figurative language to describe Follow me, the manner in which he was going to come down in judgment against Jerusalem in 70 AD, okay? And what makes this difficult to interpret is that Jesus is using what's called apocalyptic language 
to describe these events, which is the, the same kind of language that we find when you open up books like Daniel and, and Revelation with deal, that deal with, with end times and deal with, with the doctrine of eschatology. So just to keep everything in the open so that we are square, so that we are as clear as we can be, I am going to land, because I, I have to in some ways, I am going to land on a particular interpretation, but I want to qualify that by saying that I'm, I'm not dogmatic about it, and, and, and I won't be dismissive of those who might read these verses with one of the alternate but acceptable views out there. So having said that, I, I think it's important that we not forget that these verses were spoken by Jesus in a conversation with four of his disciples that would have later been read, by the way. Remember who the audience that this was originally given to later been read by those who were being persecuted for their faith. It's important as we even start from the beginning here that we keep that in mind. So if we back up, if we go back to the last couple weeks, some of the things we've been going through, building up to this, we know that Jesus is just days away from heading to the cross, and he's been spending time in the temple in Jerusalem where, man, he's just been getting just assailed by his opponents who have been trying to discredit him, who have been trying to trap him, and none of their attempts have been successful whatsoever. But he pronounces judgment on them nonetheless for not believing God's word and therefore producing no godly fruit and leading the people, these religious leaders, of who these, uh, the people who they had responsibility over for training and teaching these things, for leading them astray. So Jesus doesn't take kindly to that. And he comes down against them on that. So as we get to verses one through two, which we just read, we begin with what seems like this innocent comment by one of Jesus' disciples concerning the temple and how beautiful and awe-inspiring apparently the architecture was. Now, this was the same temple um, that King Herod had rebuilt in 19 BC. This was not Solomon's temple, but that temple had been desecrated this was the temple that, that King Herod had rebuilt in 19 BC and was described by some at, at, in that time as a, and I quote, a mountain of marble decorated with gold. That also sounds like a delicious dessert. I don't know. So just think of, of an uncommonly just spectacular structure where you, you, you show, like I remember we were on the California coast and we visited the William Hurst Castle. I mean, this thing is just like out of control. You walk up and you are just like stunned. You're blown away. You don't know how they did it. It's up this long winding pathway up this mountain, like before they had cars, I think. I don't know. And you're just like, you're astounded by how somebody could have designed and then built this structure. So apparently it was the same reaction the disciples had when they looked at this magnificent structure. But Jesus does something interesting. He takes this sort of seemingly innocent comment and he kind of turns it on his head. You see these great buildings, he says, they're going to come down stone by stone, right? Now what he's doing, what Jesus is doing right here is he's making a prophetic declaration about the imminent destruction of the temple. So Peter, James, John, and Andrew being naturally curious and concerned, they ask Jesus when this event will take place and what the signs will be that will accompany its fall. And I think that's a reasonable question. Like I feel like I would have asked the same thing. It's a reasonable question to ask if this was an event that would actually happen in their lifetime, right? So Jesus starts by taking Peter, James, John, and Andrew through the signs leading up to the judgment of Israel and the destruction of the temple. And then he ends by encouraging them to keep awake. And that is how we're going to find our broader application as we step through this. So let's 
start a little bit where we're going to end with that question. Are you keeping awake? Some of us may very well see, we might be living in the age where we will witness and see the glorious return of Christ within our lifetime. Some of us may, may not see his coming, but we are going to see trials and tribulation. Are we keeping awake to the spiritual realities that God has called us to be aware of in our day and age? Are we Christians who are taken in by the allure of the world and by a culture that spends every waking hour consuming the very things that consume and enslave them? We have to ask that about ourselves. Are we instead keeping awake in the gospel and living like redeemed people unstained by the world? Are you living a wakeful life? Are you living a wakeful life? So when we look down at verse three here, Jesus begins by warning his disciples to not be led astray as he gets ready to tell of this, these cataclysmic events that are going to unfold in their lifetime. He warns them to not be led astray by those who come in his name. Don't drink the Kool-Aid is what Jesus is saying. And what we know from first century historians like Josephus is that many false Christs, many false messiahs and prophets did emerge 30 years later before the destruction of the temple. Jesus says, don't be taken advantage of by charlatans. Be aware. Don't be led astray. I remember uh, Dave Durland, for those of you guys who remember, one of our older elders who, who moved away last year, he warned us when we went on our missions trip to Romania last year to be careful about people that would, that would offer to exchange our American money for Romanian money because he said a lot of them weren't on the up and up, right? So he warned us. He basically said, don't be led astray because you're going to look at them. You're going to be like, this is easy. I can get the cash I need, but they're going to shortchange you. And that is the sense that, that Christ is giving his apostles right now. And then he goes on to mention that there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars, crises between nations, earthquakes, famines, but that these are simply signs that this catastrophe is drawing near. It's like when you have your kettle on the stove, right? It's getting warm, but it's not quite boiling over yet. That's all he's trying to say here. So Jesus encourages them not to be troubled as these are only the beginnings of the kinds of sorrows that will be experienced in their lifetime. Think about what he's telling them as this event was approaching. Be on your guard, he tells them. And he mentions this in verse nine because they will be on trial for their lives. They will be on trial for their faith. They will be brought before councils, it says, governors and kings to bear testimony of the gospel. But don't be anxious, he says. Notice how he gives them all of this apocalyptic language, but sprinkled in between it, he's shepherding them, he's pastoring them. He's saying, don't be anxious. He says, don't worry about what you'll say because the Holy Spirit will speak through you. And when we get to the book of Acts, we see this being fulfilled in the lives of these apostles, as Peter and Paul even were brought before councils. They were brought before kings. They were given the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, of which they suffered greatly for proclaiming, for being faithful to, for not shrieking back, for not running away and hiding in fear. So the very things that Jesus is prophesying here they would see come to pass. They would see fulfilled. And this will also be a time, Jesus said in verse 12, when people's own family members will betray the faith and turn against one another because being a follower of Christ will cost you. 
It will cost you your reputation. It will cost you much more than even your reputation. But he says, if you endure to the end, you will be saved, meaning your life will be a testimony to God's sustaining grace if you endure to the end. Now, I don't know what you're thinking right now if you're these four disciples, but it's not looking good, right? And yet, what do we see here? We see Pastor Jesus here encouraging them. He says, don't be alarmed. He says, be on your guard. Don't be anxious. Endure. Salvation comes to those who endure. And of course, this is no less true for us, right? These words are no less true for us. Living in whatever kind of world, job situation, family scenario, life stage, season that we find ourselves in today, we know that for those of us who claim Christ, for those of us who live out the gospel, it doesn't mean that things can't go bad, but we have something better in us than the things that are going bad around us. This is what he's trying to tell his boys here. And as we get to the words abomination of desolation, what? In verse 14, Jesus is referring, what he's doing is referring back to a prophecy made in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 20 through 27, of the future temple that was prophesied being desecrated or, or destroyed. That's what that means. And we know historically that this actually took place about 30 years later, again, in 70 AD, when the Roman emperor Titus he besieges Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple just like Jesus is predicting would happen. In fact, it was, it was, such, it was such a bloody mess that 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered in this conquest of Jerusalem by Emperor Titus. But what's interesting is there's also a good record of the many Christians who heeded the signs written in this book who were saved because they listened and they heeded the warnings and the signs, and they received the encouragement from Jesus. Then we look down at verses 14 through 17. It's like Jesus, all of a sudden, he changes his tone a little bit. He, he raises his voice now, and he says, look, when you see this desolation start to unfold, take some practical measures. Get yourself out of harm's way. You need to flee the city. Like these are real things that are happening. If you're pregnant or it's wintertime, be aware of the increased difficulties that you're going to face. Because these trials and these tribulations, man, these are gonna be unlike anything experienced up to this point in time. In fact, it will be so traumatic, Jesus says, that nobody would have any chance of surviving if God didn't shorten the days for the sake of his elect, his chosen people. So once again, we see God's grace in the middle of severe persecution and judgment coming down. And then finally, Jesus doubles up on his warning against false prophets who say Christ is coming and have all kinds of fancy magic tricks to back up their claims. Apparently, these dudes will be so convincing that even the elect, God's chosen people, could be fooled if not for God's illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to guard his people. That's how powerful these false prophets will be, the kind of influence they will have. So he says, be on guard, be on guard. Remember these words I'm telling you. You can feel the urgency in the tone of Jesus. You can imagine the level of dismay 
right? You can, al- you can imagine the, the, the level of urgency that the disciples must have felt as they're listening to this from Jesus, as they're trying to understand, as they're anticipating something that's going to come in their lives that is going to be a test of their faith. You can imagine what might be circulating in their hearts. Imagine just some of the bad news that you've gotten at, at any point this year. I mean, I feel like when the phone rings, I feel like, like what these brothers must have felt. You know, every once in a while, like I'll walk into the room and I'll hear my wife say, oh no, and I'll be like, ah, you know? I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, oh, I just dropped, like, I just dropped something on the floor. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, so that's nothing. You imagine this and you think, these brothers are giving, being given the prophetic words of, of Jesus. So then we get down into verses 24 through 27. Jesus has been giving all these signs. And then he comes down and he explains the judgment that's coming. Now, the passage, again, like I said, it moves from signs leading to the destruction of the temple to the actual judgment of Jerusalem, which isn't surprising when you consider that Jesus only recently cursed a fig tree as a sign of judgment against Israel, and then he cleansed the temple, he overturned the tables, he drew out the money changers due to the priests' unlawful, unbiblical practices. Now, verse 26 is one of the main passages that kind of falls under fire for us here within the church. The debate here is whether Jesus is referring to his second coming here, future, future, or Uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So given the context of what Jesus is sharing with his disciples, which here is namely the destruction of the temple, I lean into these passages as being figurative language about Jesus coming down in judgment over Israel at the time when their temple was destroyed. So part of the reason I do that is because you can find parallels with the kind of descriptive apocalyptic language Jesus uses when you go to Old Testament passages like Isaiah 13, 6 through 10. So this was about the Babylonians coming in and taking Jerusalem. Listen to the way Isaiah talks about this, and you're going to see parallels uh, to the way Jesus talks about this in verse 24. He says in Isaiah, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. So that was from Isaiah predicting the Babylonians coming in and taking Jerusalem. It's very similar to the kinds of language here that Jesus is using very figuratively to describe, again, the thing that he's discussing with his apostles about the coming destruction that they need to be on guard and and aware of. So staying in context with the original question the disciples asked Jesus concerning the destruction of the temple, this is the language he uses. This is the language he uses to describe what would eventually happen in their lifetime. He says in verse 28, hey, learn something, fellas. Learn a little something from nature here. When a fig tree starts leafing, it tells you something. It tells you something about what's coming next. You know that summer is coming. It's the same thing with these signs I'm telling you, Jesus is saying. And then he says in verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, What does Jesus mean when he says this generation? 
Well, if you take what he says literally right now, if you switch from the figurative language of his coming judgment and you take what he says now, speaking directly to the disciples, literally to the men that he's speaking to in the moment, the plainest reading of this text would lead one to believe that it's their generation. It's their generation that he's referring to that are going to see all these things. Their generation is not going to pass before they witness these things, before they go through them. Now, there's probably gonna be disagreements about what I just said, about verse 30, forever. Uh, But in my study of this passage, I I was led to read this particular part in a more literal sense. Um, And part of the reason is that this would have carried the most urgent meaning for the apostles who were asking Jesus a question about a future, again, that would unfold in their lifetime. I hope you guys are all tracking with me on this. More importantly, he encourages them pastorally, okay, in verse 31 with words that apply in our lifetime. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says, but my words will not pass away. The word of God outlasts all things. Jesus is saying, don't let this pandemonium overshadow my promises. That's the encouragement he's giving to his apostles. And so he exhorts them as we come to verse 28. He wraps up his discussion by saying, look, by the way, this imminent judgment and destruction, nobody knows the day or the hour, so be on guard. He says, keep awake. The main point here is that this prophecy would be fulfilled suddenly when it did come. So he exhorts, he encourages his followers. He says, be watchful and aware to be people who were keeping awake, to not fall into the sleepy state of those who ignore the signs and then are caught unaware. So as we get to the end of this, and again, maybe the quickest drive-by of Mark 13, probably a bad analogy, I shouldn't have said drive-by, but probably the quickest overview of uh, Mark 13 that may, you know, I should pro- maybe I'll win a Guinness Book of World Records on this one. Um, but this brings up a lot of questions for how we apply what this implies to us. It's interesting that Jesus just unleashes this cataclysmic future on four of his apostles. Can you imagine, we talked about this a little bit earlier, can you imagine knowing that this was awaiting you, but you ultimately had no idea when? It's incredibly interesting, I think, for our purposes here, that Jesus doesn't give them a date. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't seem to be a date setter. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Jesus doesn't say, hey, fellas, it's gonna happen, you know, August 5th. You know, 70 AD, so just be ready. He doesn't do that. Could it be that he doesn't do that because we have an issue with our calendars becoming more important than Christ? And we've seen kind of a history of that happen to us, to Christians, to the church over the years. People who interpret these verses as being about Christ's second coming, which is okay to interpret these as that, but the problem comes when we ignore the part where Jesus says, the day or the hour... Not known. It's not known. I remember 1988 when I was two years old and uh, there was one of these things, there was one of these big things that came out and these happen all the time. You guys remember 2012 with the Mayan calendar and it's like, oh, it's the end of the world. You know, the Mayans had this all figured out. It's like 2017, yo, you know what I mean? But um, 
But I remember in 1988, there was all this stuff that went around and, you know, like my parents received these massive like booklets in the mail and it was 88 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1988. Really? I mean, it's nice. Like, oh my gosh. It's like, could Jesus have been more plain when he talks about the day or the hour not being known? He said, even in his human nature, he didn't even know. The father had not revealed it even to him. And yet, we probably have, you know, 2017 reasons why Jesus is coming in 2017. I'm sure you guys are going to be receiving that anytime soon. Not by us. Um, But here's what's most helpful for us, all joking and ridiculousness aside. What's most helpful is focusing on the Christ who's returning, not on the dates he might be returning on, which are revealed to nobody. Right? And you see some of this. Maybe you've come from traditions like that. I've come from traditions like that, where you got charts out and you got like fiery brimstone charts, like just all over the place. And everybody's like trembling in fear. Trembling in fear for the return of Christ? Like, does something sound a little off about that to you? This is our hope. This is the hope of glory for those who are in Christ that Christ will return, that we will be joined together with him, that we will be known as he knows us, that together we will be face to face, that things won't be, we won't see through a glass darkly anymore. What a great hope that we have. We know Christ is going to return. It is the great hope of the Christian faith. But we're also told that we need to wait because we don't know, because it's happening at a time that God that God has chosen in his timing, which is always good and which is always best. What's important for us to remember here is that Jesus was preparing his followers for future suffering while awaiting his future suffering. And the most remarkable thing of all this for our purposes is their response. Is their response. What happens when we get to the book of Acts? What happens? These brothers get to the book of Acts with us, before us. Do they hole up in fear? Do they start prepping for the end of the world? Do they start building bunkers? Do they move to Canada? They go on mission. That's their response. That's how they keep awake. That's how they redeem the time. Is it any different for us? Whether this passage speaks about the coming of Christ or the coming of a catastrophe, how is it any different for us? It's not. You have to ask yourself whether your future, whether the way you think about your future is characterized by fear or by faith. Because all through this passage, Jesus says, don't be anxious. He says, be on guard. He says, don't be troubled. He says, my words will not pass away. He says, keep awake, remain alert. He's saying this to people who might be meeting their death when 70 AD arrives. I mean, do you think that this may have caused the disciples just a smidge of concern? What choice did they have? Well, they had the same choice that we have, which is to believe the words of Jesus. Words that remain standing when all else fails and falls. Do you do that? Do you bypass 
the words of Jesus in your life because your fear has eclipsed your faith and has become the thing that controls your mind and your heart? I think that's an important question for us to wrestle with. I remember uh, Melissa had a friend who said she skipped passages like this because they made her so afraid. They made her so afraid. But that's not keeping awake. That's not the intention here. I remember I had a friend who uh, just put an overfocus. He was the opposite. All he wanted to do was read about prophecy and the second coming of Christ and he, just to the uh, absence of everything else, to the absence almost of Christian living, he put such an overfocus on passages like this where everything became about conspiracies. Everything became about survival. So again, the focus was on what he had to do to survive to the end because there wasn't a lot of hope because all this was going down. And then for some of us, end time stuff is not super hypey right now. Some of us just kind of shrug and go, okay. Just kind of ambivalent about the fact that we do have a savior that will someday return. And if I don't talk about that enough up here and I don't think I do, then I repent to you guys about that because I am battling with my own tradition that I came from, which was just maniacal about all of these things. So you can pray for me for that because I don't want that to become the occasion for us to not rejoice in anticipation over the coming return of Christ. But everything I just described about our friends, all of that is actually not awakeness. It's not wakefulness. It's sleepiness to the spiritual realities that God has called us to be aware of in our day and age. It's actually worldly behavior. It's being consumed by the fear that consumes the world. It's being preoccupied by the occupation of the world to become self-sufficient and independent and material-minded instead of keeping awake in the gospel like blood-bought people whose futures have been purchased by the shed blood of Christ. So as we close, what does it mean then to keep awake? He says, keep awake. He says, I'm going to tell you what I tell to all. He says, stay awake. What does it mean? Three things keeping awake means, number one, being on guard. Being on guard. What are you asleep to in your life that is causing you fear and anxiety? Do you find yourself distracted by all the cares of the world? Do you find yourself swayed by every wind of doctrine like Paul describes in Ephesians 4? Are you growing instead in the kind of wisdom and discernment that comes from a devotion to the word, that comes from a fellowship like we're doing now with the saints? Are you on guard? Are you on guard against the right or the wrong things? I think those are significant questions. Keeping awake means being on guard. Secondly, it means banking everything on God's word. Here's a question for you. I ask a lot of questions when I preach. Is what God says the truest words in your life? Is what God says the truest words in your life? Or are your words more God-like in your life than God's word? Because God's word is the only thing that can bear the weight of all our hope. It's the only thing. It's all we got and it's everything. Jesus wasn't shortchanging 
the disciples when he said his word would not pass away. Because if you're like me, I would have said, I, can you give me something more? I mean, can you give me like a location that we can go and hang out? Can you give me a group of people that are going to make sure that I got some food? Like, give me, give me something else. And Jesus goes, oh, we have my word. It doesn't pass away when everything else is crumbling. That was the most important thing they would need to remember. They could bank on what? On his word. They could bank on what? The Holy Spirit speaking through them. And they found themselves in places of which they didn't know what to do or to say like us. So keeping awake means being on guard. It means banking everything on God's word. Thirdly and finally, it means boldly moving ahead. You know what they didn't do? You know what these brothers didn't do? They didn't go into self-protection mode. They knew their time was limited. Even if nothing happens in our life like this, we know our time is limited. And with all this in their future, they boldly moved ahead under the power of the Holy Spirit to change the world. Dudes that caught fish for a living. It's a fine vocation. But they went on to change the world. We are gathering today as a church who proclaims the gospel and holds to the truth of these scriptures because of the faithfulness of these fishermen to boldly move ahead as God was working through them to establish the church that he built. It's phenomenal. We don't know when the world will end. But we do know God's word never does. So we keep awake in anticipation of our insurance, of our blessed insurance, which we're getting ready to sing here in a minute. Remember in the parable of the bridegroom in Matthew 25, as the bride is waiting for the appearance of the bridegroom. Is the bride afraid? Is the bride trembling with fear? No, the bride is not afraid of the bridegroom coming to take her away because she waits in hopeful expectancy. She endures in her waiting. She's keeping awake. And we can endure because our salvation comes from one who endured like us and for us. And he will return in glory to take us home to glory with him. Let's pray. Lord, what a word that you gave to your apostles. As we look down, there was so much that was said, so much warning that you gave them, yet so much encouragement. Lord, we thank you for your honesty in your words to us. We thank you that you never say anything that is unnecessary to the fruit that you would have being produced in our lives. We thank you that every word that we read in scripture is bankable for us. It's there for a reason. It's there for our instruction. It's there for our exhortation. It's there for life and for godliness. Thank you that we can read Mark 13 
and know that it's there for our life and for our godliness. And so, Lord, we pray for that, that godliness. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be people that are characterized by fear, but that we'd be characterized by faith, that we would keep awake, Lord, that you would make us alert, that we would remain sober, that we would be people of the word, that we would be people that encourages and loves one another when we are facing trials and tribulations of which we don't know what the beginning of the end or the end is. But let us be that for one another. Let us be a city on a hill that shines as a community of hope for a weary world. We thank you that in Christ we can do these things and that you have equipped us and you continue to train us and you continue to draw us more deeply out of ourselves and deeper into the image of Christ. Lord, bless this gathering. Bless the people that call this church their home. Lord, grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.